Restrictions ease across the globe as the world holds its breath. The media remain as frivolous as ever, and so do our politicians. And we examine what it's like to have a baby in a time of coronavirus. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Today's show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Don't let others track what you do. Keep yourself safe at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Well, I hope that you had a wonderful weekend. We're going to get to all of the news, including people actually having a wonderful weekend in certain areas of the country in just one second. First, you may have noticed that things are kind of volatile, economically speaking. You don't know which way the stock market is going to go. You don't know what the government is going to do with inflation, how that's going to affect your savings. You need to take some of your money and diversify. I mean, your money needs to be diversified. That means precious metals. Over 26 million people have now lost their jobs because of this coronavirus pandemic. Even with the stock market slightly recovering, we just don't know what things are going to look like in two weeks or three or three months or a year. Think of the position you'd be in now if you had had a portion of your retirement tied to precious metals before coronavirus upended the global economy. It is not too late to secure your future. Call my friends over at Birch Gold right now. I can do a lot for you, including if you're interested converting your traditional IRA or 401k into a precious metals IRA. No matter what you do, you should have some of your money in precious metals before May 31st. With a qualifying purchase, Birch Gold will give you a free emergency kit. The backpack absolutely loaded with everything you can't buy right now. So safeguard your savings with Birch Gold. They'll help safeguard your family like they did mine. There's no obligation. You have nothing to lose other than to take that first step. Birch Gold Group. They have thousands of satisfied customers, countless five-star reviews, and A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Don't wait until the market drops more. I mean, you just don't know what's coming. So you should talk to them over at Birch Gold Group. Text my name, Ben, to 474747 and diversify today. Again, text Ben to 474747. When you invest with them, you do get a free emergency kit. You can text Ben to 474747 for more information. Okay, so the world is beginning to unlock. The lockdowns are starting to end, not just in the United States, but everywhere. And one of the things that's always been very weird about how the media have treated the situation in the United States is that they're treating the situation in the United States as though the United States exists in a vacuum. It doesn't. Other places in the world saw deaths arising about the same time as the United States, and many of them are starting to relieve lockdowns at the same time as the United States, countries that were much harder hit than the United States. Here's the reality of the situation, by the way. The United States was really hard hit in one place, New York. Right? Every other place in the United States, we had some places that were sort of moderately hit, but in terms of broad span United States, if you took New York out of the calculations, meaning its population, as well as the number of deaths from coronavirus, the United States has the same about number of deaths per 100,000 residents from coronavirus as Germany does. And Germany is leading the pack right now in terms of Western European countries and how they are doing with this thing. So it really is New York centric. New York is a is an oddity because New York is so crowded because the, the rates of transmission are higher in New York simply because people are right on top of each other taking the subway. That doesn't really exist anywhere else in the United States in the same way that it does in New York, which is why New York City has seen 12,000 or so deaths. And those are just the ones that have been counted. The truth is it's probably a little bit higher. Other places in the world that have been harder hit, places like Spain, places like Italy, these are places that are starting to relieve their lockdowns right now. According to the AP, Spain let children go outside and play Sunday for the first time in six weeks as European countries methodically work to ease their lockdowns and reopen their economies, while governors in the United States moved at differing speeds, some more aggressive, others more cautious. Around the world, China's state-run media said that hospitals in Wuhan, the original epicenter of the disaster, no longer have any COVID-19 patients after a crisis in which the city recorded nearly 4,000 deaths. Now, do we believe China on that? Probably not. They've actually locked down movie theaters again in Beijing. So that suggests that this thing is not, in fact, dead. So anything that comes out of Beijing cannot be trusted. But Prime Minister Boris Johnson in Britain is planning to be back at his desk Monday at 10 Downing Street after he had coronavirus. 
Governors in states like New York and Michigan are keeping stay-at-home restrictions in place until at least mid-May, but even those governors are starting to figure out exactly how they transition back to regular life, especially for people who are not in major urban areas, major cities with heavy population densities. Their counterparts in places like Georgia, Oklahoma, Alaska are starting to allow certain businesses to reopen. Churches in Montana began holding in-person services again on Sunday, and that does make some sense because, again, a lot of these states have not been heavily damaged. A lot of these states never went into lockdown in the first place, and we're still not heavily damaged. And, and it is important to recognize that it was failures in specifically high population places that led to certain things getting out of control. New York City did not lock down until very late. Bill de Blasio did not lock down New York City until nearly the end of March, like a full week after the entire state of California locked down. Andrew Cuomo still had a rule in place for weeks that if you were infected with coronavirus and you were elderly, they had to accept you back at your nursing home, which is like the worst idea ever. They did the same thing in California, by the way. In Italy, one of the big reasons that, that things went raged out of control in Italy is specifically because it was high population density and also because of the demographics and healthcare deficiencies. According to the Associated Press, virologists and epidemiologists say that what went wrong in Lombardy will be studied for years, given how the outbreak overwhelmed the medical system long considered to be one of Europe's best. While in the neighboring Veneto region, the impact was significantly more controlled. Lombardy's frontline doctors and nurses are being hailed as heroes for risking their lives to treat the sick under extraordinary levels of stress, exhaustion, isolation, and fear. What exactly happened? Well, Italy was the first European country to halt all air traffic with China on January 31st, even put scanners in airports to check arrivals for fever. But by January 31st, it was already too late. Epidemiologists now say the virus had been circulating widely in Lombardy since early January, if not before. And that is at least partly the fault of China, which was still lying to the World Health Organization and saying there was no human-to-human transmission. Doctors treating pneumonia in January and February didn't know it was the coronavirus because the symptoms were so similar and the virus was still believed to be largely confined to China. Even after Italy registered a February 21st case, which was its first death, doctors didn't understand the unusual way COVID-19 could present itself with patients experiencing a rapid decline in their ability to breathe. One of the weird things about COVID-19 is that people will arrive in the hospital and seem to be breathing fine, but their oxygen saturation levels are like 50%. So it's very odd because normally when you have that sort of oxygen saturation, you're struggling and gasping for breath. That's actually not happening. People are, are desaturating really, really quickly. Because Lombardy's ICUs were already filling up within days of Italy's first cases, many primary care physicians tried to treat and monitor patients at home, some putting them on supplemental oxygen, commonly used for home cases in Italy. That strategy proved deadly because people waited too long to call ambulances. Italy was forced to use home care in part because of its low ICU capacity. After years of budget cuts, Italy entered the crisis with 8.6 ICU beds per 100,000 people. The OECD average, OECD is the, is the basically industrialized West, they have an average of 15.9 ICU beds per 100,000 people. Germany has 33.9 ICU beds per 100,000 people. So Italy was not like the United States, which is one of the reasons why even in New York, the healthcare system was not, in fact, overwhelmed. And so the United States is starting to reopen things. We're starting to see different states treating this thing differently, which, by the way, is the way that this should work. We should see different states treating this thing differently. Pretending that all states are equivalent in their approach to this is, is full-scale idiocy. New York City is not like Tennessee, for example. Even New York is starting to consider how they can reopen at this point. According to the New York Times, with promising indications that the coronavirus contagion has passed its peak, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York laid out a broad outline on Sunday for a gradual restart of the state that would allow some low-risk businesses upstate to open as soon as mid-May. Honestly, he should be opening those up right now. Like, there's really no reason. What, there, there's not a lot of travel inside the state of New York right now. There's no reason why upstate New York, like why Rochester, should be treated exactly like New York City. They never had the outbreak levels of New York City. The governor's announcement, coming as the state recorded its lowest death daily toll in nearly a month, 
was filled with caveats, but nonetheless offered a clearest outline yet for recovery in New York, the national center of the outbreak, with nearly 17,000 people dead. That human devastation has largely been confined thus far to New York City and its sprawling suburbs. Under Cuomo's plan, upstate regions would move forward with reopening long before downstate with an emphasis on manufacturing and construction industries in which telecommuting and working from home are impossible. Cuomo said such changes could occur shortly after May 15th. That's when the statewide stay-at-home order is scheduled to lapse. He says that many of the restrictions on business and residence activity could be continued for weeks, if not months. He said no restrictions will be loosened in New York City in the near future, which does raise the question as to how exactly he plans to reopen New York. I mean, this is one of the big problems is that New York City, because everybody is so closely packed together and because it is very difficult, I, I cannot even imagine how you actually perform contact tracing in some place like New York City. I really don't know the answer to that. This thing spreads incredibly quickly. If the subways are still open, how do you possibly contact trace a subway car? How? You're stuck in a subway car for 15 minutes. You infect everybody in the car. Those people get out and get on other subways. There's a reason why New York City was, according to the antibody test, at least 21% infected. That is a very, very high infection rate considering they went into full-scale lockdown in late March. So I don't know what he thinks is going to be the necessary level of contact tracing in order for them to reopen in New York City or whether New York City is basically just going to have to operate at low level until a vaccine is developed if they don't want another outbreak or whether they're just going to have to live with the new normal and recognize that if you are young and you are healthy, then you're going to have to go back to work. You're going to wear a mask. You're going to socially distance. And if you are older or vulnerable, then you're going to have to shelter in place as you can. But there are no good solutions for New York City. And the the it is unclear whether the worst solution is a total lockdown or basically social distancing. It seems to me that these lockdowns are not really achieving what they anything beyond what they were originally set to achieve, which is preventing the overwhelm of the healthcare system. And Cuomo, by the way, has already acknowledged that the system was not overwhelmed in New York City. They did not lack ventilators. They just sent away the USS Comfort. And so they, they were not actually overwhelmed. The Javits Center was not full of people suffering from COVID-19. That's not what happened. The Samaritan's Park Hospital in Central Park, they were not overwhelmed. So you're starting to see other cities beside New York reopen. In Georgia, close contact retail businesses like barbers and tattoo parlors were allowed to open on Friday Areas where large numbers of people congregate, like movie theaters, were expected to accept customers on Monday. But mayors of large cities like Atlanta and Augusta have resisted Governor Brian Kemp's call for reopening. Mr. Cuomo says that he was closely monitoring hospitalization, infection and recovery rates in the city and regionally with an eye toward the federal guidelines released by the White House 10 days ago. Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey also says he's going to begin to lay out a vision for reopening his state, which has also lost thousands of lives due to coronavirus. Now, one of the things that's irritating is when you hear people like Murphy say things like this. The road back will be driven by data, science, and common sense. Okay, yes, all of these solutions are going to be driven by data, science, and common sense. The suggestion that if people disagree with you, they are anti-science is just absurd. The science does not dictate what the political priorities are or what the balance is going to be. And to be accurate, you should acknowledge that there's going to be a lot of vagary, and there's going to be a lot of trial and error, and there's going to be a lot of of just having to catch as catch can, because that is the reality of the situation. And Cuomo is pleading with local officials to consider how to provide for summer activities for residents, including children. Mayor Bill de Blasio has already said the city's public swimming pools will not open in the summer. The playgrounds are still shut for the time being. Cuomo said, you can't tell people in a dense urban environment all through the summer months, we don't have anything for you to do. There's a sanity equation here. Weird, because I remember Andrew Cuomo saying last week, there is no contrast between human lives and lost jobs and lost livelihoods. So which is it? I mean, I said last week that Cuomo was lying about that, and he was. The fact is that you're going to have to balance all of these competing priorities and come up with the best available solution. Now he's saying we can't keep the playgrounds and the pools closed all summer long because people are going to go insane. What do you think happens when people lose their jobs en masse, Andrew Cuomo? 
Also, uh, Mayor de Blasio says we're going to come back stronger and fairer, which is always the key word for Democrats. Stronger and fairer means they're going to try to radically restructure the economy. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But Cuomo says the data will be evaluated in two-week increments and the companies wanting to restart work would be individually evaluated to determine how essential a service does that, that businesses provide and how risky is that business. Now, how essential a service is, is really not the business of the government. Okay? And, and, and that sort of language needs to die. Okay? It is not the job of Andrew Cuomo to determine how essential a service is. You know how essential the service is? Exactly how many people are willing to patronize the service under conditions like these. That's how essential the service is. People get to decide that, not Andrew Cuomo. That is full-on government control language, and it needs to stop. When we said essential workers originally, what we really meant were people who were just keeping you alive, right? Like healthcare workers or food supply workers. But if we are talking about how reporters are essential workers, but people who are working in manufacturing are not, that's just a bunch of crap coming from the government. It's just, it's, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. Okay, in just a second, we're going to get to more of this. We're going to talk about one of the problems here, which is the lack of standards and the failure of local authorities to set up reasonable standards. We can get to that in just one second. First, let's talk about your the simple fact. You are now doing more online shopping than ever before. We know, by the way, that the retail industry in the United States is going to decline right now and that online shopping is going to become ever more prevalent. Well, here is a great way for you to save money really easily and for free over online, and that is at honey.com. We all shop online a lot, but Honey is the free online shopping tool that saves you money online. Honey will automatically find the best promo codes and then apply them to your cart, which makes online shopping finally feel as easy as it is supposed to be. Imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites, Target, Best Buy, Sephora, Macy's, Amazon. When you check out, there's a little box that drops down. All you have to do is click apply coupons. And then you wait a few seconds for it to scan for every single promo code on the internet. And then you can just watch the prices drop. I've saved hundreds of dollars using Honey myself. Honey has found it's over 18 million members, over $2 billion in savings. It's a lot of money that you can save by using Honey. And again, you're passing up free money if you don't use Honey. It is free to use. It installs in just a few seconds. Plus, it's backed by PayPal, so you know it's good. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash Ben. That is joinhoney.com slash Ben. Again, joinhoney.com slash Ben. Right, that's a great way to save money. Joinhoney.com slash Ben. Okay, so when we look at how states are reopening, it is relevant to see that people are being responsible. So here's the key question. Do you trust Americans to be responsible or do you not trust Americans to be responsible? This, in the end, is going to be the key question because without things radically changing, things are just not going to radically change. And I know that's a truism, but it is true, okay? Truisms are true because, are truisms because they are true. If nothing radically changes, if the vaccine is not developed, if no great therapeutics are come up with, the math is going to be the same no matter what you do. And so the question now becomes, can you trust people to take responsible action in their daily lives to prevent other people from getting the disease? Can you lock down the most vulnerable areas? And if, you're, if you are calling for heavy levels of testing and contact tracing, you're going to have to explain how that really works in places like New York City. What level of testing, how many tests per day are necessary in New York City? How many contact tracers are necessary in New York City? How are you even going to perform that when the vast majority of people with this thing are asymptomatic? We now know that antibodies have formed in 21% of the population in New York City, but only one-tenth of that have actually been tested. They've had about 200,000 cases in New York City. 20% of the population in New York City is somewhere around 1.7 million people. And so, so to pretend that you're going to contact trace millions and millions of people pretty much every day is going to be very, very difficult. And this is especially true when we're not ramping up testing like this. When people say that we're going to ramp up testing to 20 million a day, they're insane. Fewer than 2% of the United States has actually been tested at this point. 5 million people have been tested at this point. The problem with the test is if you test negative, that doesn't mean you're going to test negative next week for COVID-19. So you could test 
all 300 million people today. And that does not guarantee that you've gotten rid of coronavirus. Coronavirus is not going to be got rid of. So what this relies on is people being responsible. And here's the thing. I think the American people are responsible. I think they're more responsible than our media and our politicians. I'll tell you that. If I have to, if I have to determine whom to trust, members of our political class, members of the chattering class, who are lucky, people like me, who can sit in places like their house and broadcast to you and still have their jobs, or the normal Americans who can be trusted to go out and take responsible measures. I trust normal Americans. I do. And if you don't trust normal Americans, I wonder what you're doing living in a republic. I don't think people want to kill other people. I really don't. And I'll give you some examples. So over the weekend, there was a heat wave in, in California. It was really amazing weather outside. It was like 90 degrees in California, 85, 90 degrees in California, at least Southern California. And it was just, it was fantastic. And if you are a Californian, this is like your time, right? You go out to the beach, you really party up. So LA County shut down all of its parks and all of its beaches, which is full-scale idiocy. What they really should be doing is they should have police officers at parks and on beaches telling people that they need to at least socially distance. If that's how you want to implement it, implement it that way. But my, my family and I, like literally every family I know yesterday went to a park. And by the way, if you couldn't go to a park in LA, we went outside of LA. Right? You went to Burbank or you went to Pasadena or you went to Oxnard or you went to Newport Beach. So yesterday, my family, me, my wife, my three kids, we all went to a park in, in Burbank slash Pasadena and people were being responsible. There were lots of people there and people were 30, 40 feet away from each other. Nobody got close to each other. Everybody was staying away from the common areas. All of the benches were taped off. All of the tables were taped off. All the playgrounds were taped off. It was a nice, fun, open area. I was playing Frisbee with the kids. I wasn't the only one. I was flying a kite with the kids right there. People can do this responsibly. They can. Most people were wearing masks even though they really didn't need to if you're 30 feet away from somebody else. Okay, so, well, there's a big story over the weekend. 40,000 people showed up in Newport Beach. Why? Because everybody came from LA County. Because LA County is stupid and they shut down all of their parks and beaches, all that ended up doing was shuffling all the people who wanted to go to the beach to one beach, right? Everybody went to Newport Beach or Huntington Beach. So 40,000 people show up. And the way the media cover this is disaster area. There's gonna be widespread disease in Newport Beach. When you actually watch the video that, that was put together by local news, you have to ask yourself, how many of these people actually are like less than six feet away from each other and are not in the immediate social distancing group, right? Like me and my family, I don't have to distance from my wife and my kids. The question is, how far are we away from the next group of people who are isolating at home? So people are going nuts over this. The pictures from above show people 15, 20 feet apart, right? Pretty far apart from one another. Here's a little bit of the media coverage of it, though, which is disaster area, people dying in the streets. I don't think so. I think, the Amer- I think most Americans are being responsible here. Battalion Chief Brian O'Rourke estimates 40,000 people on Newport Beach Friday, twice as many as Thursday, and he says many are from L.A. and San Diego. Can you go back for a second and just look at that above shot? Okay, there's a helicopter shot of Newport Beach. Look how far these people are are away from each other. Right, this is from a helicopter, so those people are far away from each other. Uh, They look as though it's a lot of people. That is a lot of people standing very, very far away from one another. I'm not spotting a ton of people who are sitting two feet away from another from one another. These people are are at least six feet away from one another in open air. Sunlight does kill this thing, by the way. Right? According to the Washington Post, sun, half the virus could be killed in as little as two minutes if it's on a surface, if surface exposed to sunlight and high humidity at room temperature. According to the Washington Post Health 202 blog, which, by the way, is really good. It's a good source for information. We're not talking about bringing sunlight inside the body or something. We're just talking about the fact that people who are outside in open air where it is hot are less likely to obtain this disease. Okay, so people are socially distancing. You can continue to play the video. 
and he says many are from LA and San Diego. We're seeing a huge increase with, with crowds that we would normally see out here in the middle of the summer. So they've beefed up lifeguard patrol and asked people to please social distance. We really want people to be safe, so sometimes we're torn when we get these huge crowds. If you come and you act like this, like there's nothing wrong and everyone's here throwing a football and having a beer with their buddy, you know, that's, that's how you ruin it for the rest of us who are safe social distancing. Okay, I have a question. If you're having a beer with your buddy and you guys are like living in the same apartment, I, I wonder, how's that not social distancing? Seriously, like you live in the apartment with, with them. I mean, you know, my, my producer, Colton, lives in an apartment with roommates, right? Or he, or he did until shortly. Like He lives with roommates, okay? So most people who are young live with roommates because they can't afford an actual apartment on their own. If you go out with your buddy and you're throwing a football around, that is still social distancing. Most people are being, and I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience, at the park yesterday, families staying away from one another. Okay, I'll give you another example. There's a video going around, and it's fantastic, of this woman in Georgia who's reopening her hair salon. Okay, and the way she describes how she's reopening her hair salon, this is great Americans doing great American stuff. Here's a woman explaining exactly how she went about reopening her business. We're wearing masks. We're going to have gloves on. Uh, we need you to wear a mask as well. You'll come up to this window, big sign, check in here. There's instructions to sanitize first, sit in your car, and wait on your stylist to come get you. Once your stylist comes and gets you, then you will be able to enter into the salon. Upon checking out, we do have um, like a, a mark on the floor here. That's where you'll stand to check out. You'll also have your temperature checked, so be prepared for that. Okay, so this is a person who is being responsible. And then people like this are being ripped. Oh, she just wants to go get a haircut. No, she wants to reopen her business and people are being responsible. Now, this doesn't mean that the authorities aren't going overboard. So yesterday in Oxnard, I have a close family friend and he went with his family to Oxnard. Okay, because Oxnard is not in LA County. It's, it's Oxnard County, Ventura County. And, he, uh, and, and people were staying away from each other, far away from each other. And in a second, I'm going to show you what happened when the police decided to show up and, her, and basically harass a 93-year-old couple because everything is stupid. We'll get to that in just one second. First, Let's talk about this being your chance to become your favorite child, your parents' favorite child. Okay, here, here's the reality. You can't visit mom and dad in many cases right now. What you can do is make sure that they know that they are cared about. And that means that mom gets flowers for Mother's Day. This Mother's Day, celebrate her with 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, when you order early at 1-800-Flowers, you can get 30 assorted tulips for 20% off the original price, which is a great way to make every mom feel loved, especially when it matters most. Mother's Day is coming up. And since Mother's Day is coming up, by the way, and you can't see mom, what better way to celebrate than getting her a beautiful bouquet of flowers to make sure that she, she remembers that you're not just taking advantage of the social distancing not to visit. With a bright mix of orange, yellow, and pink blooms, these tulips are guaranteed to show all the moms in your life just how much they are loved. By the way, these flowers are spectacular. Like every time I go out of town, I send my wife flowers from 1-800-Flowers. She loves it every single time. 1-800-Flowers is committed to the safety of their team members and your family, so all deliveries are contactless. Picking an early delivery date ensures your bouquet will arrive in time to make Mom's Day special. By the way, these flowers also last like a really long time, a lot longer than the stuff you get over the grocery. 30 assorted tulips for $39.99. It's an amazing offer. Availability is limited. Limited. Hurry and order before Friday. With limited delivery windows, you need to lock in that order early. Don't put it off. Order today from the official florist of Mother's Day, 1-800-Flowers.com. Order those 30 tulips for $39.99. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com slash Shapiro. That's 1-800-Flowers.com slash Shapiro. The offer does end Friday, 1-800-Flowers.com slash Shapiro. Go there and use code Shapiro, 1-800-Flowers.com slash Shapiro. Go check them out right now. Okay, so 
the American people are being responsible. That's not stopping the authorities from being forced to implement some of the dumbest orders I've ever seen. So over in Oxnard, and this is a tape from yesterday, my friend was, he, he took a video of it because he couldn't believe it. There are cops on horses going up to a 93-year-old couple. Who are, there's nobody, by the way, within like 40 feet of this 93-year-old couple. Right? They're, you think the 93-year-old couple wants to get COVID? They're dead if they get, not, if they get COVID, right? They're, they're socially distancing. They brought their own folding chairs. And the cops went over to them and told them they were not allowed to sit on the folding chairs. They're 93. They're not allowed to sit on the folding chairs. Why? So they're allowed to sit on the ground, but they're not allowed to sit on the folding chairs. Because folding chairs, according to the Oxnard cops, are permanent. Whereas if you sit on the sand, that is not permanent. Which is just insane. I'm sorry, that's totally crazy. Since when has bringing your own folding chair and sitting on the beach been a sign of permanence? These people were 93 years old. It's unbelievable. It's so stupid. So do you trust the American people or do you not trust the American people? And it is stunning, honestly, the, the sort of soft bigotry of low expectations applied to the American people here. There's an article in the New York Times about how some black leaders in Georgia are upset with the state allowing stores to reopen. According to the New York Times, several African-American leaders in Georgia, including the mayors of Atlanta, Savannah, and Augusta, criticized the decision by Governor Brian Kemp to allow gyms, barbershops, tattoo parlors, and spas in the state to reopen last Friday, houses of worship to resume in-person services, and restaurants and theaters to reopen on Monday. That stance seems to put them in agreement with President Trump, who said the move was, quote-unquote, too soon. But Stacey Abrams distanced herself from the president. She said, I give the president no credit. He actually caused this challenge by tweeting for weeks that we should liberate our economies. First of all, who cares what Stacey Abrams has to say? I mean, at this point, she's basically John Cusack holding up a boombox outside Joe Biden's house, begging to be picked for vice president. But critics of the early reopening include influential clergy members like Jamal Bryant, pastor of New Birth Missionary Baptist, an Atlanta-area megachurch, and the Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock, who's running for the U.S. Senate in a special election against Senator Kelly Loeffler, a Republican appointed to a seat by Governor Kemp. Mr. Bryant, in a Facebook Live video, said the reopening was derelict of responsibility and absent moral integrity and specifically aimed at places African-Americans like to gather, like salons and barbershops, right after many people had received their stimulus checks. So now, now I'm confused. So if you say that you want to reopen barbershops and salons, somehow this is racist because according to this particular pastor, Jamal Bryant, who's running for the Senate, black folks like to hang out at salons and barbershops. So if you reopen them, then apparently what, what is he saying? Is he saying that black people are not capable of being responsible at barbershops and salons? Is that his argument? Because that seems kind of racist to me. It seems to me that black people, like all other Americans, are perfectly capable of being responsible going to barbershops and salons. So the idea here is going to be that if people are irresponsible and that if that irresponsibility causes a spike in cases that is located in a particular community, that's the fault of the state-level government as opposed to individuals making bad decisions. If you don't want to be infected, don't go out. And if you don't want to be infected, socially distance. And that would be, a, that, that would be on you, being responsible. I, I understand that we, we've now created a, a cradle-to-grave society in which nobody's expected to take responsibility, but personal responsibility at this point would be a very, very useful thing, it seems. By the way, when we speak about these lockdowns, there are serious questions as to whether these lockdowns have even worked. These are real questions. According to T.J. Rogers, writing for the Wall Street Journal today, the quick shutdowns may not actually be all that effective. According to the, this columnist named T.J. Rogers for the Wall Street Journal, he says, to do quick shutdowns work to fight the spread of COVID-19? Joe Malchow, you know, and Weiss and I wanted to find out. We set out to quantify how many deaths were caused by delayed shutdown orders on a state-by-state -state basis. To normalize for an unambiguous comparison of deaths between states at the midpoint of an epidemic, we counted deaths per million population for a fixed 21-day period, measured from when the death rate first hit one per million, e.g. three deaths in Iowa or 19 in New York State. 
A state's days to shutdown was the time after a state crossed the one per million threshold until it ordered businesses shut down. We ran a simple one variable correlation of deaths per million and days to shutdown, which ranged from minus 10 days, some states shut down before any sign of COVID-19, to 35 days for South Dakota, one of seven states with limited or no shutdown. The correlation coefficient was 5.5%, so low that engineers I used to employ would have summarized it as no correlation and moved on to find the real cause of the problem. No conclusions can be drawn about the states that sheltered quickly because their death rates ran the full gamut from 20 per million in Oregon to 360 per million in New York. This wide variation means that other variables like population density or subway use were much more important than lockdowns. Our correlation coefficient for per capita death rates versus population density was 44%, which suggests New York City might have benefited from its shutdown, but blindly copying New York's policies in places with a low COVID-19 death rate, such as native, such as Wisconsin, doesn't make any sense. Meanwhile, Sweden, which has been beaten up by the left-wing press in the United States, continues to approach herd immunity. Since people over 65 account for about 80% of COVID-19 deaths, Sweden asked only seniors to shelter in place rather than shutting down the rest of the country. Since Sweden had no pediatric deaths, it didn't shut down elementary and middle schools. Sweden's containment measures are less onerous than America's, so it can keep them in place longer to prevent COVID-19 from recurring. Also, they probably won't get a second wave. So how did the Swedes do? They suffered 80 deaths per million, 21 days after crossing the one per million threshold level. With 10 million people, Sweden's death rate is lower than that of the seven hardest hit U.S. states, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Louisiana, Connecticut, Michigan, New Jersey, and New York, all of which except Louisiana shut down in three days or less. Sweden is in the middle of the pack in Europe, comparable to France, better than Italy, Spain, and the U.K., and worse than Finland, Denmark, and Norway. And also, Sweden is not vulnerable to a second wave because, again, there's not going to be a wave. Everybody has been there all the time, right? I mean, Sweden is now a lake. It is not an ocean. There's not a wave and then a break and then another wave. Instead, they basically said, okay, we're going to let the water level rise to what the water level is, and then that's just going to be the water level. The Swedish ambassador, by the way, says that they will reach herd immunity in May. Karen Ulrika Olafstadter told NPR, about 30% of people in Stockholm have reached a level of immunity. We could reach herd immunity in the capital as early as next month. So a lot of people seem like they are rooting for Sweden to fail. It seems like we should really be rooting for Sweden to succeed because if Sweden succeeds, that is going to mean a life that is much closer to normal than anything that we are talking about right now. Also, when we are deciding public policy, it is very important to determine exactly which people are dying Specifically, because that means we tranche populations and have to set, I mean, I've been saying this for literally a month now. You have to tranche populations and determine who is most vulnerable, and then how do we protect the people who are most vulnerable? Treating every individual person as though they are equally vulnerable is idiotic. People who are older are significantly more vulnerable to this. And also, if you lose a job and lose your business at 30, and you're balancing that against an increased risk of somebody who's 80, that is a balance that has to be taken into account because the person who's 30 is going to live another 50 years. The person who is 80, not to be too blunt about it, is going to live another one. I mean, so that, that, that does make a bit of a difference when you're talking about the number of days lived. The, all these calculations sound cold-hearted and cruel. They're called policymaking. Okay, the fact is that while all life is precious, quality of life is also quite precious. And we are going to have to make these decisions. Otherwise, Andrew Cuomo would just declare an endless shutdown forever. So would every other Democrat. For every Democrat who says that all it's about is saving lives, somebody needs to ask them a simple question, which is, okay, so why don't we just shut down forever because COVID-19 isn't going away? Presumably you want to reopen at some point and there will be additional risks to the American public. Now, doing statistical analysis of those, of those risks is called being a responsible policymaker, especially in light of the fact that there are countervailing concerns about having lockdowns of this sort. One of those countervailing concerns the New York Times reports on, vaccine rates are actually dropping dangerously for small children. Why? Because parents aren't going into the pediatrician. So that means that you're going to see other childhood diseases spike this year because parents did not go and get the measles, mumps, rubella shot for their kids. 
According to the New York Times, as parents around the country cancel well-child checkups to avoid coronavirus exposure, public health experts fear they are inadvertently sowing the seeds of another health crisis. Immunizations are dropping at a dangerous rate, putting millions of children at risk for measles, whooping cough, and other life-threatening illnesses. That is bad news. We've also seen people who are undertreated for cancer, people who are undertreated for heart disease. And as we'll see, the economic impacts of this thing are extraordinary. We'll get to that in just one second. Then we'll get to the deep unseriousness of our media and politicians because everything we've discussed up to this point is pretty serious policymaking. It's all policymaking discussions. How much can we trust the American people? What are the measures that we should take? Will social distancing and contact tracing work? How do you even contact trace in big cities? Like, these are the real questions that need to be asked. Instead, why don't we have, like, I don't know, a week-long conversation about whether to inject yourself with, with Clorox? How about that? Let's just do that for, like, a week because our media are fundamentally unserious. And does that mean that President Trump is right to get up there and speculate foolishly about dumb things in front of people? No. Does it mean that we all need to worry deeply that the American people are going to go out en masse and start chugging Drano? I'm pretty sure not. We're going to get to more of this in just one second. First, let's talk about a simple fact. There has literally never been a better time to not go to the post office. I don't care how much you like the post office. Now is a horrible time to be at the post office standing in line, dealing with surfaces a lot of other people are dealing with. Instead, why not do all your mailing from home and save money in the process? This is where stamps.com comes in. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do at stamps.com. You can print postage on demand and skip the lines and crowds at the post office. Plus, you can actually save some money with discounts you can't even get at the post office. Here at The Daily Wire, we've been using Stamps.com since 2017. We do not waste our time and we do not waste our money, which is why we are still in business. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service directly to your computer in the safety and comfort of your own home, office, anywhere else you are hunkering down right now. Whether you're a small business sending invoices or an online seller shipping out products, or you're just working from home and you need to mail stuff. Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just leave it for your mail carrier, schedule a free package pickup, or drop it in a mailbox. No human contact is required. It is indeed that simple. And like I said, with Stamps.com, you get great discounts to five cents off every first-class stamp, up to 40% off USPS shipping rates. And now, Stamps.com is also offering UPS services with discounts up to 62%. Plus, you don't have to pay UPS residential surcharges. This is a no-brainer. Right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and digital scale, no long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the mic at the top of the homepage, and type in Shapiro. That is stamps.com, enter code Shapiro for that four-week trial, plus free postage, and a digital scale, no long-term commitment. Solid, solid deal. Okay, we're going to get to more on all of this in a second, including the economic meltdown that is about to occur and the apparent desire for a new New Deal, even though the old New Deal probably lengthened the Great Depression by almost a decade. There are people who are like, yeah, more government. It's a great idea. Let's inflate the currency so everybody's savings are worth nothing. Fantastic, fantastic idea, guys. Let's blow up government programs that are completely counterproductive and useless. Perfect idea. We had until five minutes ago an unemployment rate that was 3.5% and a steady growing economy that had been booming for years. And now you're like, let's give all that up and let's just go full social. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. We'll get to that in a second. First, being locked inside right now requires double the excitement, double the joy, double the leftist tears. Ah, yes. Two leftist tears tumblers to hold all of those tears. Right now, when you become a Daily Wire Insider Plus or All Access member, you get a second leftist tears tumbler. I am not fibbing. I am not kidding. With Bernie Sanders now out of the race for president, one tumbler just was not enough to hold all of those leftist tears. You need another tumbler to contain the rage and the anger. Daily Wire members get many amazing benefits, including... Of course, these magical, magical beverage vessels. But you also get an ad-free website experience, access to all of our live broadcasts, show library, the full three hours of the Ben Shapiro Show, access to the mailbag, and now exclusive election insight op-eds from moi. Daily Wire members also get to ask us questions during backstage. You also get to participate in All Access Live. That's our brand new interactive programming featuring one of us 
Daily Wire hosts as we hang out with you each night at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I believe I'm doing at least one, maybe two this week. This is content for our all-access members that's been temporarily opened up to all our members right now because everybody's having a tough time. If you haven't already, download that Daily Wire app. You can get all of our fantastic content on the go. So again, become an Insider Plus or all-access member and double your tiers with two leftist tiers tumblers. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe to become a member and get 10% off with coupon code Shapiro. So, I mean, that's a pretty solid deal. 10% off, two leftist tiers tumblers, dailywire.com slash subscribe, coupon code Shapiro, and get the rarest of beverage vessels times two. You're listening to the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. So one of the big questions here is how fast the economy is going to bounce back. What will not cause the economy to bounce back is stimulus checks. Because right now, the only question is how deeply the demand curve has changed thanks to coronavirus. Because let's say, for example, that this thing went away, like right now. Let's say the coronavirus no longer existed. You wouldn't, even, you wouldn't need any government intervention. Everybody would go back to work. We'd all go out. We'd shop. We'd go to movies. We'd do all the stuff we were doing before. And the economy would go right back to where it was before. Right? That's a V-shaped recovery. But because demand has now changed, the government intervening can actually really screw up the new demand curves. The government intervening will prop up industries that don't actually survive, right? Prop up retail that's going to fail. Prop up people who aren't going to be able to afford their mortgages, which actually damages people who can pay their mortgages and also prevents a quick recovery. Prevents labor from moving from industries that are dying into industries that are growing, right? Government intervening in the markets creates friction. And that friction doesn't allow the fluidity that is necessary in order to grow the areas of the economy where people are actually going to have long lasting jobs. If you own a restaurant, and let's say that that restaurant actually is destined to go under because people have changed their eating habits, right? You own a small bodega and the small bodega only had 10 seats in it in the first place. And now you're talking about social distancing, which means you have one seat in the small bodega. And that means you can't survive. The government propping up your bodega, while it's good for you, is very bad for the economy long run, because all the government is doing at that point is pouring money into a pit that is never going to be filled. What the government needs to be doing at this point is merely propping up the businesses that are likely to survive and paying the unemployment for people who lost their jobs until businesses can grow again and people can move from one into the other, right? That's what needs to happen right now. Now, the Trump administration is expressing a lot of optimism. Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, he says the economy is really going to bounce back in July and August. And maybe that's the case. I will say there was a feel over the weekend as people went out to parks and were socially distancing that people are ready to get out of their houses, right? People do not want to be stuck in their houses any longer. They're willing to undergo the travails of going outside with the mask and socially distancing if it means they get to participate in life again. So I think there will be a a recovery in July and August. I just don't know that recovery with this many lost jobs is going to be sufficient in order to grow the economy anywhere near what we had before. Here's Steve Mnuchin. I think as we begin to reopen the economy in May and June, you're going to see the economy really bounce back in July, August, September. And we are putting in an unprecedented amount of fiscal relief into the economy. You're seeing trillions of dollars that's making its way into the economy. And I think this is going to have a significant impact. Okay, this, you know, it may have an impact in terms of just tiding people over. But the reality is that according to the CBO, the unemployment rate will be above 10% next year. Okay, we were, we were at 3.5% two months ago. The White House economic advisor, Kevin Hassett, told reporters on Sunday that the jobless rate is likely to hit 16% or more in April. He says, I think the next month, couple of months are going to look terrible. You're going to see numbers as bad as anything we've ever seen before, which is exactly right. And that's despite the next wave of IRS, quote unquote, stimulus payments. Now, we really need to come up with a better term than stimulus payments. It is not a stimulus. A stimulus is designed to get you to spend money this is not what this is. This is a fill in. The government drove a hole through your through your house, right? This is a 
reparation, essentially. This is the government did damage to you, and now the government is forced to repay the damage that they did to you. Social security beneficiaries and people who gave the IRS deposit information are on tap. They are going to get their checks. This is not going to help the economy recover because, again, people need to know what they are going to spend on before we can determine where all the jobs are going to go. Now, this is driving people on the left to suggest that the time for big government is back. It's time for big, big government. Ayanna Presley is a good example of this. The Ringo star of the squad, Ayanna Presley, representative from Massachusetts, Basically, she called yesterday for free everything. She wants to completely restructure the American economy. This is what scares the hell out of me. One of the reasons that we need people to go back to work, one of the reasons that if you are healthy and can go back to work, then we, we need to tranche back into the economy is because there are too many people on the left who are rooting for the government to fill the gap here, rooting for the government to completely remake all of American society off the back of a pandemic since they had a really tough time arguing two months ago that the economy was failing and therefore we needed to remake all of human life. Now that the economy has been basically neutron bombed by the government. They're saying the government needs to come in and, and rebuild, like Marshall Plan for, for America. Here is Ayanna Presley basically suggesting the complete regulation and government overthrow of private areas of American life. The things that I'll be fighting for, student debt cancellation. We need rent and mortgage cancellation. And might I add, not just residential, but commercial as well. More money for our community health centers because they serve our most vulnerable, for our undocumented and our immigrant family, friends, and neighbors. What else? Direct cash assistance, more support for our food banks because food insecurity has been the number one issue um, that I've heard. So some of those ideas we're already doing. Also, the rest of it, relieving student loan debt? No. You can delay payments while people don't have jobs. You can renegotiate payments. Just getting rid of them? Getting rid of mortgages? Like, what is she even talking about? You can hear the eagerness with which Democrats are talking about their proposed restructuring. Rahm Emanuel, who coined the phrase, never let a good crisis go to waste, or at least popularized it. He said the era of Ronald Reagan that said basically the government is the enemy is over. And then Steve Bannon, who's just a bag. Okay, I know Steve Bannon personally. Dude's a bag. He says the era of Robert Taft limited government conservatism. It's not relevant. It's just not relevant. Okay, well, he was saying it wasn't relevant five minutes ago also. So all the people who already said that small government wasn't relevant are still saying small government isn't relevant. So what exactly is their their proposal here? That we blow up government spending? That we inflate the currency? By the way, that's the next step here. We are pouring six to seven trillion dollars of money into the economy. We're going to have to inflate the currency at some point to pay back all the money that we have borrowed. Over the next year, you are going to start to see some actual inflation. There There was talk about... There wouldn't be inflation in 2007, 2008. Yes, because it was a financial crisis, meaning money came out of the actual economy. Okay, in the, there, was, there was lack of actual ability of banks to fund loans. At this point, there's a lack of demand. Pumping money into the economy just means extra money in the economy, which means that your savings are worth less. Prices are going to start rising with inflation. That will happen over the next couple of years. Your savings are going to be degraded. According to Gerald Seif and John McCormick, writing for The Wall Street Journal, the Great Depression produced both a bigger social safety net and a host of new government programs. World War II led to the creation of a unified defense department. The Cold War spawned an interstate highway system. In just the past two decades, the 9-11 terrorist attacks produced new consolidated agencies to handle homeland security and national intelligence. The 2008 financial meltdown led to a broad range of new actions by the Federal Reserve that are being replicated and expanded now. Today, both parties and a vast majority of voters have come together behind a broad and aggressive response at both the federal and state level and have accepted a sea of new red ink at a time the federal budget deficit was already heading toward a trillion dollars annually. Yes, there is a difference between a vast emergency caused by government-forced shutdowns and systemic changes to the American economy that outlast those shutdowns. And the fact that crisis always breeds growth in government and that the, the 
retrenchment of government afterward, that it goes down to from 10 to 7. It doesn't mean it goes down from 10 to 0. And that's dangerous. In a recent Wall Street Journal NBC News poll, voters of both political parties said by a two-to-one margin they approved of the expansion of government's role in the economy to meet the crisis. That, of course, has to happen to meet the crisis. But the point is, what happens after this is no longer a crisis? It's just a bad situation. And this grand notion that government can save everybody from this stuff has been loudly disproved by the actual past. And the, the, the Republicans, thank God, are already starting to push back against this. But the fact is, there is a ratchet effect that every time there is a crisis, you start to see government spending rise. And then once it goes back down to quote unquote normal, it never goes back down to where it was before. People who are already calling for bigger government, people like Orrin Cass, right? He's already calling for bigger government. And he says, okay, well, we need more bigger government anyway, right? You're starting to see people who are already calling for the government to outpace everything else, calling for more of that. Okay, now here's the problem. It doesn't work. Okay, the Great Depression was prolonged by seven years by the New Deal. The New Deal was a ridiculous government set of policies that were unconstitutional in the extreme that not only seized private property, but also wasted a bucket load of taxpayer dollars, drove GDP spending levels up to catastrophic proportions, and kept unemployment rates 10 to 20% in real terms all the way up till the beginning of World War II. The New Deal was a gigantic failure, an enormous gigantic failure. According to Harold Cole and Leo Hanyan, this is all the way back in 2009, these are professors at UCLA School of Business. They pointed out that the New Deal did not restore employment. In fact, there was even less work on average during the New Deal than before FDR took office. Total hours worked per adult, including government employees, were 18% below their 1929 levels between 1930 and 32. They were 23% lower on average during the New Deal. Private hours worked were even lower after FDR took office, averaging 27% below their 1929 level. Even comparing hours worked at the end of the 1930s to those at the beginning of FDR's presidency doesn't paint a picture of recovery. Why wasn't the depression followed by a vigorous recovery like every other cycle? It should have been. The economic fundamentals that drive all expansions were very favorable during the New Deal. Productivity grew rapidly after 1933. The price level was stable. Real interest rates were low. Liquidity was plentiful. So what exactly happened? The New Deal. Some New Deal policies certainly benefited the economy by establishing basic social safety nets. Say these these guys, but I think that's probably not even true. But Others violated basic economic principles. They suppressed competition. They set prices and wages in many sectors well above their normal levels. By the way, this is one of the great dangers. Once you make the government the lender of first resort, the government is going to start lending to politically favorable groups. And once that happens, that's a lot of money out the door for no apparent reason. It means regulating. It means preventing people from actually being able to do business. That's the direction Democrats want to move. I've said before, there are several reasons why I'm grateful that Trump is president. During this pandemic, it's one of the times I've actually been most grateful that Trump is president, not for some, some of the silly things he says, but for the fact that he is not attempting to use a crisis to completely rewrite the bargain of the American people and the government about the economy. You can see Democrats are desperate to do this stuff. Democrats would like to see the government expand. Kirsten Gillibrand has an entire piece at the New York Times today talking about how we need to subsidize the U.S. mail. And then she's calling for vote by mail, universal vote by mail, despite the fact that voter fraud is the easiest thing in the world with universal vote by mail and Voter vote gathering is one of the more corrupt issues in America right now when it comes to voting. The idea that you as a Democrat, you target all the Democratic homes, you stop by their houses and you pick up their ballots for them, and then you drop those off. Ballot harvesting, which is what we have here in California, super duper corrupt because that's not equal access to the ballot box. That's equal access to the person who's going to pick up your ballot, which is not equal because it turns out that now you basically have funded party apparatuses picking up votes from people. So whoever, that, that's really where campaign finance starts to make a difference. If you've got an apparatus that is funded with hundreds of millions of dollars for the Democratic Party, 
and hundreds of millions of dollars for the Republican Party and one dude for the Libertarian Party. Who do you think is picking up the votes? All of this is stupidity, but this is going to be the great battle. The great battle is going to be between people who thought America was a pretty damned amazing place before this and think that America is still a damned amazing place. And once we come out of this, and as we start to recover in a different world, that the fundamental principles underlying America still are eternal and good and true and free economies still work and laissez-faire is still going to be the best solution, fluidity in business, creative destruction is still a thing, and people who believe that this is an opportunity to completely recast and remold America. The people who always believed America was a bad place that required grand governmental intervention in order to shore up institutions that they particularly like. That's going to be the new battle. That battle never stopped. It was going on before this. It's going to go on after this. So watch for the under uh, certain things change, certain things do not. The underlying fundamentals of, of that are not going to change. The only thing that's going to change is that this can't last. I mean, what, what is happening right now cannot last, right? We're going to go back to work. The question is going to be under what circumstances and more importantly for the country, what the future of America is going to look like. Is it going to look like massive continuing government intervention in the economy from both parties because you can always buy voters? Or is it going to look like a principled return to basic principles that made us the most prosperous country in world history? And using a crisis as an opportunity to break that bargain is a mistake. Okay, time for some stuff I like and then a good deal of stuff that I hate. So stuff that I like today. So I've been watching, as I've pointed out, I have small children. This means that I spend an awful lot of time viewing children's movies and kids' literature. So this movie got some flack from people, uh, mainly for the CGI of it. CGI didn't really bother me in this movie. It was really charming. My kids loved it, loved it. Uh, the, the new movie, The Call of the Wild with Harrison Ford, which I will admit my kids are six and three. And so uh, I will not say that they understood the, the end particularly well. I sort of glossed over what exactly happens at the end of this movie. But the movie is, is moving and charming and the kids love dogs. So it is perfect for them. Uh, it is it is really good for for young kids. It's not particularly scary, so it's it's definitely worth the watch. There's a little bit of the trailer for Call of the Wild. How do you feel about an adventure beyond all maps? We could go, you and I, where no one's ever been before. See what's out there. I never saw him believe in anything as much as he believes in you. Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford's really only in the last, last maybe 35 minutes of the film. But the, the film is, is, it's fun. It's great. My kids really enjoyed it. So I recommend it for kids. Worth, worth the watch. Uh, also, the music's great. John Powell is one of the best living film composers, and he does the score to this. He also did How to Train Your Dragon, so you'll, you'll hear some similarities. Okay, other things that I like today. So I, I will say I love this over-the-top ridiculous piece by Bill Weir, the CNN chief climate correspondent. He wrote a, a piece called To My Son, Born in the Time of Coronavirus and Climate Change. Woo boy. And so first of all, let me point out, I have a daughter. She was also born in this time. My daughter is now seven weeks old. She was born March 4th. And... um. I'm not going to write her a letter about what a difficult life she is likely to lead. Because guess what? I don't think that's true. I think my, my daughter is likely to lead a fantastic life with the help of God. Bezrat Hashem in Hebrew. With the help of God, she is likely to lead an incredible life. She's likely to live in still the wealthiest society in human history. She is likely to live a healthy, happy, peaceful life because the modern world is a phenomenal place filled with amazing technologies and tremendous abilities and prosperity. She is likely to live in a time of increasing environmental quality, not decreasing environmental quality. Because the fact is that people care about the environment. People are going to adjust to the needs of the environment. 
My daughter is likely to live a happy, fulfilled life. But how would you like to burden your brand newborn? with Your life is just going to be a bleephole of pain and rage. That's what Bill Weir does. He wrote a piece called, uh, he wrote a piece about his kid. He wrote, My Dearest River. Hey, first of all, always great news when you name, yeah, I mean, you can tell where this is going. A river is a, you want to name your kid River, by all means, enjoy. But I didn't name my kid Tree. That's all I'll say. My Dearest River. Against all odds, you were conceived in a lighthouse. Wow, TMI. Didn't need to know that. Didn't need to know what the with like like a like a, a lighthouse with like with like Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson or what? Born during a pandemic and will taste just enough of life as we knew it to resent us when it's gone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry we broke your sea and your sky and shortened the wings of the nightingale. I'm sorry that the Great Barrier Reef is no longer great. That we value Amazon trademark more than the Amazon. And that the waterfront neighborhood where you burble in my arms could be condemned by rising seeds before you're old enough for a mortgage. Seriously? Really? Like, this is, this is, the kid's like a day old. Hell's wrong with you? And it feels like that's, the Great Barrier Reef is no longer great. Make the Barrier Reef great again. The scent of your downy crown makes my heart explode. The curl in your tic-tac-toes fills me with enough love to power New York City. If only, if only we could have cities powered by love. Oh, instead, the milk in your bottle was warmed by dirty, ancient fuels. And as a result, you'll learn to walk on a planet that has never been this hot for humans. Okay, so I guess we're not doing the breastfeeding then. We are just now wrestling with the implications of this. But as your pop, the most poignant evidence was seeing your mother give you your first kiss through a P100 mask that smelled faintly of smoke. I'm sorry, my boy, but we were warned. See, for decades, scientists told us if we weren't careful, humans would unleash an invisible enemy out of the jungle and into our lungs. But that was a story few wanted to believe. So we kept cutting down jungles and prairies and mangroves in the last few places where the wild things are to pave and plow, develop and devour everything inside. Okay, so now I'm just going to point something out. Okay, it's, it's kind of important. This coronavirus was started by a bat. You know what's actually great for not being infected by bats? Not eating them and or interacting with them. You know what's great for not eating and or interacting with bats? pavement. It turns out, you know, bats are not really fond of civilization. They live a lot more in the wild. I love that his answer, like this paganistic notion that nature took its revenge. Plague has been part of human existence and non-human existence for the entire history of biology. But for Bill Weir, it's all about, we built an extra bedroom in Manhattan and now the bats came for you. What the hell is wrong with these people? And this is their chief climate correspondent. I definitely trust him to be an objective news reporter. Very objectivism, objective, lots of journalism happening over at CNN. As you get older, this will be hard to understand. But we were under the spell of Genesis 128. Ah, now this is the time where the environmentalists rip on the Bible. It's all the Bible's fault, guys, which has been around for 3,000 years and we didn't have air pollution for most of that. As you get older, this will be hard to understand, but we were under the spell of Genesis 128 to take dominion over every living thing. We had the strange urge to carve straight lines out of nature's curves, and we're under the spell of uniquely human force called profit motive. Ooh, profit motive. The same thing that gives Bill Weir a job at CNN as opposed to being a loser living in a yurt on the fringes of civilization. By the way, Genesis also says that you have to take care for the environment. You're supposed to actually take care and guard all of the natural resources that we have. When we finally realized that worried scientists were right, people got scared and went searching for potions and protections. They emptied store shelves even faster than the jungles, and all the invisible enemy masks were gone, just in time for your birth. Your mom and I were so scared, I was just about to swallow hard and pay a faceless, soulless internet profiteer $600 for a 50-cent N95 when I remembered the mask I used to protect my lungs from a fiery place 
called California. By the way, California's pretty great. I live here. Also, a so that faceless, soulless internet profiteer, like you couldn't get the N95 any, anywhere else, could you? Profit motive is very bad, except how it produces the N95 that you wanted to buy. It might have saved your mom from the virus, so I keep it next to my hurricane waiters, malaria pills, and the bulletproof vest with the patch that reads, press, he's a hero. A hero! If I have to pack them and kiss you goodbye more often than you'd like, I'm sorry. But we were warned. For generations, scientists told us if we weren't careful, a different kind of invisible enemy would come out of our farms, factories, homes, and cars, get into the sky and the sea, and end life as we know it. But that was a story too few wanted to believe, including me. But today's coronavirus, carbon dioxide and methane molecules don't care what we believe. The laws of physics have no regard for how we vote or what we worship. So this will be your first life lesson, Little River. We are human, and unlike all the other animals, we are made of stories. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, this goes on like a long time. And he talks about how the Bible is super terrible, too terrible, bad. We burn gasoline for no good reason, he says. You mean like the no good reason of keeping billions of people alive? Billions of people alive? He says, he says, every Christmas and summer vacation, I'd go visit your grandpa Bill in the mountains of Colorado as we hiked, paddled, and explored. I'd hear very different stories with heroes like John Muir, Edward Abbey, Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson, by the way, is responsible in large part for the rise in malarial deaths in Africa because she got rid of DDT, which was one of the keys to keeping the mosquito population down. He says, even as plenty of men, he talks about the evils of Hiroshima, I mean, th this whole thing is just insane. It's insane. He has a small child and he's talking about how evil America is. And like, I feel bad for this kid. This kid is going to become an alt-right fanatic just to, just to piss off dad. That's going to happen with this kid. This kid is going to be like on the internet digging into the evils of, of Reddit and 4chan within five minutes of being born. Kid's already on the internet right now. In the year before you were born, says Bill Weir, I took a road trip across America with science as my map. I set out from the Florida Keys to Alaska, from the heartland to burnt paradise, all to imagine how unnatural disasters will change our future. I met fire farmers, firefighters, fishermen, politicians, protesters, paleoclimatologists. I came home completely rattled because the American way of life I grew up with is already gone. The Goldilocks climate that allowed humanity to thrive is in the past and nobody seems to know it yet. If we do nothing, it will mean the end of predictable growing seasons, flight schedules, supply chains, resource wars, tens of millions of climate refugees, changing everything we know about borders, neighbors, and strangers. If we give up on our most primal job we have as humans, haven't we already lost? Uh, go right ahead. And, and then at the very end, he's like, your, your grandpa would chalk you up to a glorious twist of biological fate because we thought we were too old to become New parents, we were the last thing we imagined on a vacation to Croatia where your great-grandpa Frank was born until we found, and we found a Dubrovnik lighthouse on Airbnb. Until you know what it's like to fall in love, the story will make you blush and squirm, but I can think of no better omen for the kind of boy we hope to raise than the fact that we made sweet, sweet love at the top of a lighthouse in, in Croatia. The lighthouse keeper is vigilant and dependable with a reverence for nature's power, commitment to saving lives. This is your destiny, my beautiful river. The great thing about stories is they are always under revision. Now go write a happy ending. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel terrible for this kid. What? Wow. Okay, time for a quick thing that I hate. I really enjoyed that. Time for a quick thing I hate. So we're still talking about um, this whole injecting Clorox routine. So as I pointed out last week, President Trump has a habit. His habit is he says lots of stuff. Right? This is something I have not just pointed out now. I've point been pointing this for... Uh, four or five years at this point, President Trump says a lot of stuff. That's why we used to have a feature on the program called Good Trump, Bad Trump, which we may have to bring back at some point. It had a theme song and everything. Well, Good Trump is that his activities during the pandemic, like actual things the feds have done, are good. 
The bad Trump is that the stuff that Trump says at his press conference is very often odd. And very often, this is because apparently, according to reports, he actually doesn't meet with his pandemic task force. It's not like he gets gets together behind closed doors and just spends time with them. Basically, the first time he hears from them, he gets a bunch of note cards that he's going to read at his press conferences. And then after the press conferences, then he and then at the press conferences, like the first time he's seen Brooks in a day. And so he'll say to Brooks stuff that just pops into his head. He'll be like, what if we could bring sunlight inside the human body? Right? He'll do that kind of stuff. Okay, is that the end of the world? No, it's not the end of the world. He said a dumb thing. He said it last week. Okay, I'm not going to pretend it wasn't dumb. It was a dumb thing. Is it a dangerous thing? Are people going to start going and injecting Clorox? If you do, frankly, Darwin can have you. Because if you are injecting Clorox because the president was like, maybe we could bring disinfectant inside the human body, then you're, and then you're, you're stupid. You're stupid, okay? Like, I, I have no cure for the stupid. Does that mean that Trump is actively telling people that they should go out to Costco and buy some bleach and down it? Of course not. But because we have a fundamentally unserious media and a fundamentally unserious Democratic Party, they take everything Trump says at face value. And instead of just dismissing this stuff as dumb, which it is, instead of just dismissing it, we get a full news cycle about how people are going to inject themselves with Drano or some such nonsense. So Nancy Pelosi over the weekend decided to make the most of this situation. And she started talking about injecting yourself with Clorox. Like, why this is still a conversation is beyond me. Except it's not. I mean, it's obviously politically motivated. We just have to have a path to the future if we're going, if and when we can open up testing, 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 tracing, 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 isolation. Okay. And when we're ready, we'll go out there. But we have, there, there's planning. We spend a lot of time what the president said, when, right. and disinfect it in the body. Okay. You know what they call that? They call that embalming. That's the medical term. Okay, first of all, Nancy Pelosi knows more than most about what embalming looks like. But beyond that, the fact that Nancy Pelosi is still making an issue out of this. Also, by the way, that's not a plan. When you say testing, 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 tracing, tracing, tracing. What the hell does that mean? Thanks for saying words, Nancy Pelosi. Now, how much testing? How much tracing? How do you propose to do this? What do you think that plan looks like? It's like embalming. It says the lady who shoves more Botox in her forehead than has been created in most of human life. My, my God. So the media started playing this up over the weekend. They suggested that calls to poison control were spiking, that people were, were going out and downing Drano and bleach, and that they were taking the Lysol and just injecting it direct into their veins. By the way, I, w- I will admit that yesterday I was giving my son a bath, and he said, what happens if soap goes in your mouth? I said, now you're, you're immune to co- coronavirus. <laughs> This is so stupid. Okay, were calls going up? No, they weren't going up. According to Reason.com, on Thursday, the president suggested that perhaps an injection of an injection of disinfectant could help cure people of COVID-19. Critics of Donald Trump went to town, rightfully so. Supporters scrambled to settle on a defense. Both, he didn't really say that and he did it, but it was sarcasm had been in play. Like Trump suggested it was sarcasm. It was not sarcasm. Trump is not one for, for wordplay. Like that, no, no. Okay, but by Saturday morning, social media was abuzz with articles about people calling poison control centers, each crafted to illustrate how Americans had apparently taken Trump's ramblings to heart and consumed household disinfectants like Lysol and bleach. The problem was the articles didn't actually say that. There's one article making the rounds from the New York Daily News, and it was headlined, a spike in New Yorkers ingesting household cleaners following Trump's controversial coronavirus comments. But the article doesn't say that. It says 30 people called the city's poison control hotline over fears they had ingested bleach or other household cleaners. Fearing you ingested something doesn't jibe with having intentionally consumed the substance, you idiots. Right? If I down bleach, I don't then call CDC. Right? If I do it on purpose, I'm not like CDC. Was that a good idea or a bad idea? I'm like, yeah, I down bleach. Woo! But as Reason points out, 
They tried to circumvent this inconvenient fact at the New York Daily News by noting that over the same time period in 2019, the Poison Control Center only handled 13 similar cases. This time, nine calls were about Lysol and 10 about bleach. Last year's calls contained no, ca- no cases reported about Lysol. Only two were in regards to bleach. Okay, but um, maybe the reason why people are worried about this is because lots of people are exposed to household disinfectants. They were not exposed to this time last year because they weren't um, in lockdown, cleaning every available surface. As Reason points out, this is just, it's just nonsense. It's just silliness. But they've decided to make this an issue in the media because it's fun. Because it's more fun than actually covering the hard-nosed business of politics and, and policymaking. Dr. Deborah Burks was asked about this over the weekend, and she says, frankly, it still bothers me that people are talking about this. This is a complete waste of time. It bothers me that this is still in the news cycle because I think we're missing the bigger pieces of what we need to be doing as an American people to continue to protect one another. And we should be having that dialogue about asymptomatics. We should be having that dialogue about this unique clotting that we're seeing. And, you know, we're the first country that really had young people to this degree. Italy and Europe is about eight years older than us as a median age. So this is the first experience of this virus um, in an open society where we really can understand what's happening to every different age groups. These are the things that we should be talking about and focusing on. Well, yes, but apparently this is very bad. Emily Nussbaum, who's an idiot columnist for The New Yorker, she tweeted out, Dr. Burks is going to leave, Dr. Burks is going to leave a horrible legacy. It's one thing to be a cynical paid fixer. It's worse in my eyes to be the expert who props up the mad king. I get that it's an emergency. I understand the theoretical strategy she may, be, may think she's pursuing, but it's a moral horror. So her pointing out that you spending all of your time fulminating over Trump saying a dumb thing is a waste of time. That's a more, but it's a moral horror for her to say that. Yeah, probably would be better if she quit and left Trump completely free of good scientific advisors and left the American people to basically fend for themselves so you could feel good about yourself, Emily Nussbaum. Just idiotic. The media, by the way, again, having a field day because this is all they care about. Jim Acosta and ladies, find you a man who loves you like Jim Acosta loves Jim Acosta. He says there's not enough disinfectant to wipe away the White House's lies, which does he pre-write these things and then think they sound good? Does he like say them dramatically in the mirror to Jim Acosta? And he's like, Jim Acosta, that's a great line. I know Jim Acosta, thanks so much. Here's Jim Acosta. I think we, we found out today that the president's uh, words have meaning, but they're also at times hazardous to your health. Uh, and I think that was part of uh, what we learned today. And, and going to your point, Anderson, uh, there just isn't enough disinfectant at the White House uh, to wash away what the president did and the lies that were told to try to cover it up. I will tell you, Anderson, one of the reasons why he cut short that briefing uh, earlier this evening, my sources tell me, is because the president was upset about the flack he was taking over uh, his comments. Wow. Yeah. Did he write that one? Like, how, how long in advance? How long until Jim Acosta makes a Lysol joke? Right? You can't disinfect with Lysol. He needs a guy named Saul on the other end. So he can say, you can't disinfect with lies, Saul. We need some, some more puns. By the way, speaking of wordplay, the president engaged in some... Very witty wordplay over the weekend, according to the president. It wasn't actual wordplay. Anyway, Trump is angry at the news conferences. He doesn't want to do them anymore, which, but fine. Like, seriously, I'm cool with that. The president tweeted out, what is the purpose of having White House news conferences when the lamestream media asks nothing but hostile questions and then refuses to report the facts or truth accurately? They get record ratings. The American people get nothing but fake news. Not worth the time and effort. Agree. 100% agree. Remember, a week ago, the Wall Street Journal editorial board said he should probably not do the news conferences. And he was like, I always love doing them. My ratings are unbelievable. One week later, he's like, not doing them anymore. Poop on you. Okay, good. Fine. Okay, better outcome. Better outcome. He followed on that by just ripping everybody. So the president, obvi- he's like, I'm not frustrated. I'm going to crap all over everything <laughs> like a pigeon over a car park. I'm just going to go for it. 
So the president, <laughs> so the president tweeted out first a bunch of stuff about Nobel prizes. He called them Nobel prizes. So he he deleted all these tweets. His first tweets he tweeted out and then deleted them hours later. He said, he said, when will all of the reporters who have received Nobel prizes for their work on Russia, 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 only to have been proven totally wrong, and in fact, it was the other side who committed the crimes, be turning back their cherished nobles so that they can be given to the real reporters and journalists who got it right. He said he could give the Nobel Committee a very comprehensive list of those he deemed real reporters. And then he said lawsuits should be brought against all, including fake news organizations, to rectify this terrible injustice. When will the Nobel Committee act? Better be fast. So there are a few problems here. One, there is no Nobel Prize for for journalism. It's called the, the Pulitzer. Two, Noble is spelled N-O-B-E-L, not N-O-B-L-E. Okay, this all prompted the president eventually to delete all of these tweets and then put up another tweet in which he explained he was just engaged in a bit of Oscar Wilde witty wordplay because that's what the president is known for, the, the witty wordplay. He tweeted out, does anybody get the meaning of what a so-called Nobel, not Nobel prize is, especially as it pertains to reporters and journalists? Nobel is defined as, quote, having or showing fine personal qualities or high moral principles and ideals. Does sarcasm ever work? We were all living in a world of Donald Trump's irony and illusions and alliteration and onomatopoeia. I'm glad that we've had this literary lesson from the president. He also ripped into Fox News, by the way, as well as the Wall Street Journal. None of this is what we need at this point. So I'm glad that the president has canceled the press conferences. They are a waste of time. They are posturing by the media. We don't need them. The president also should calm his ass down. Like, seriously, when it comes to this kind of stuff, like fulminating, it's just, it's counterproductive. If you want to see Trump reelected, you know what is a bad idea, this. A bad idea would be this. Just spending all day on Twitter fulminating about Fox News and the Wall Street Journal. Who do you think is out there defending you? Mo- like, you ain't going to find, like, OANN ain't going to cut it. Okay, I like a lot of the people at OANN. Let me just tell you, OANN ain't going to be able to lift the singular burden of being able to defend defensible and good policies from the Trump administration. Alienating Fox News and the Wall Street Journal is just brilliant political tactics. It's just like genius, genius stuff. You know what we need right now? What we've needed all along. The policy of the Trump administration without the president saying this kind of stuff. Same thing we've needed forever. Because the fact is Joe Biden is vulnerable. He continues to be a garbage candidate. The media, by the way, demonstrate what he says about the rest of the media is mainly true. When he says the media are terrible at their jobs, 100% true. When he rips them about the Russia collusion stuff, 100% true. And by the way, when he rips them for being biased, also 100% true. You know what happened over the weekend? CNN, there's a tape. Of, there's, a, there's an accuser of Joe Biden named Tara Reid. She accuses Joe Biden back in 1993 of having sexually assaulted her. The media refused to cover it. CNN reported it for the first time over the weekend. That's only because the Center for Media Research, the Media Research Center, Brent Bozell's organization, uncovered a tape of Tara Reid's mother in 1993 calling into Larry King and talking about this thing. Here was that tape. I'm wondering what um, uh, a, a staffer uh, would do, do besides go to the press in Washington. My daughter has just left there uh, after working for a prominent senator and could not get through with her problems at all. And the only thing she could have done was go to the press, and she chose not to do it out of respect for him. Or she had a story to tell, but out of respect for the person she worked for, she didn't tell it. That's okay, true. so that was Tara Reed's mom, right? So we now have more contemporaneous evidence of action by Joe Biden than we have contemporaneous evidence of anything with regard to Christine Blasey Ford and and Brett Kavanaugh. The media didn't run with that. Not a single one of Joe Biden's potential VP candidates, all women, were asked about this on the Sunday shows. So when Trump rips into the media, he is 100% correct. 100% correct. That is all deserved. 
but like a little bit of, of circumspect leadership here would be a good thing. We are fundamentally unserious, but we have fundamentally unserious politicians on all sides. We have fundamentally unserious people in the media. And that lack of seriousness in a time when we all need to be kind of serious, this is why, again, I trust the American people far more than the media, far more than the politicians. The American people can take care of themselves better than the media and better than the politicians because the American people are more serious about their own lives than they are about the politicians. So before you hand more power to the media and politicians, recognize that the people leading our country are morons. And that's that's all of them. Everyone. okay, virtually everyone cannot. the, The only ones who are smart are the ones who recognize that they don't know as much about as much as you do about how to lead your own life. And aside from taking basic protective measures to protect the vulnerable, and aside from making sure that the resources that should have been available originally are now available to hospitals, because this is all government exists to do, they need to get out of your way and they need to let you get back to business and then need to let you lead your life because you're going to be more responsible than the politicians who spend all of their time doing the wrong things and focused on idiocies for political gain. And the members of the media who are busily focused in on self-aggrandizement at the cost of actual human lives in one case, and the cost of actual human quality of life on the other. All righty, we'll have two additional hours of content a little bit later today. Also, we'll be back here tomorrow, so we'll see you then. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Andrew Clavin Show, The Michael Moles Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. Thanks for listening. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Colton Haas, directed by Mike Joyner, executive producer Jeremy Boring, supervising producer Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling, assistant director Pavel Wydowski, technical producer Austin Stevens, playback and media operated by Nick Sheehan, associate producer Katie Swinnerton, edited by Adam Saievitz, Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Nika Geneva. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. President Trump appears to proclaim the virtues of shooting Lysol straight into your veins to stop coronavirus. But while the mainstream media criticize him for it, they do the best they can to sanitize their own narrative on everything from travel bans to workplace sexual assault. Then, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un and presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden compete to see which would-be world leader can seem the least lively. CNN humiliates itself and crime spikes in lockdown New York. All that and more. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So... I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 